So I hobbled around to A&E reluctantly. We walked into the reception. I said to the receptionist, I hope we're not wasting your time. And fast forward three or four hours, I'm laying in a hospital bed with a consultant stood over me, telling me that I've got anemia. And he was also pretty sure I had leukemia as well. Hello and welcome to the Straight Talking Doctor podcast. My name is Dr. Mark Cox and this is the podcast dedicated to improving your health and happiness. My aim is to demystify the complex world of wellness and mental health through eye-opening conversations with guests from any and every walk of life. No topic is out of bounds, no question too big or too small. As well as discussing my guests' inspiring stories, I want my conversations to fuel you all with useful and actionable tips that you can adopt into your daily lives. In this first series, we shall be taking a journey into mental health, tackling topics such as dealing with trauma and depression, overcoming addiction, and beating cancer not once, but twice. So thank you for joining me on this journey. Please sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy the ride. Ryan Harvey, otherwise known as the L Card Online, is a brilliant young chap on a mission to improve the lives of anyone who has been directly or indirectly affected by cancer. Without giving away too many spoilers, Ryan is a complete inspiration who has had to overcome immense physical health issues as a teenager. He uses what he learned during his journey to help others via his social media pages and his new podcast. This conversation touches on the science of Ryan's health issues, as well as the mental health fallout from receiving a potentially life-threatening diagnosis as a youngster. We also delve into the unique insights that such an experience can give someone and discuss how we can go about dealing with the trauma and challenges that arise in our lives. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan. Ryan, welcome to the show. We have connected recently via Instagram and I absolutely love the message you are spreading on there to your followers and anyone who will listen. So I think with all of the negative press that social media gets these days, we can sometimes forget about the positive parts. So I think that's one of the reasons I've been so keen to get you on the pod and help you spread your message, tell your story and share what you've learned along the way, because I think it'll be really beneficial to a lot of people. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And, and thanks so much for everything you do as well on social media, because your page is just incredible. And it's like a proper myth busting page, but the information on there is like invaluable. So thanks so much for that as well. Appreciate that. So let's go back a few years. I know that there's something huge happening in your life that probably flipped it upside down and I think it'd be really useful if you could kind of paint a picture of that day for us. Yeah sure so we need to like reel back the clock big time so back to 2013 really and I was 14 years old I just finished my first year of high school so where I'm from we have first school middle school high school just finished my first year of high school and I've got four sisters um, this is a bit of a detour into the family but basically I've got four sisters parents separated and out of all of my siblings I'm the guy who was never ill I was never never sick I go like two or three years sometimes even without having a stomach bug or a cold and then I'd get ill for a week and I'd be fine again for another three or four years and summer started that year 2013 year after the Olympics and I started getting unwell a bit more regularly from loads of different kind of symptoms that kind of led up to the point where we get to eight eight weeks down the line but essentially basically I just got progressively unwell over the summer holidays continuously until the next year of school I went back to school in September after, by, after a pretty shoddy summer holidays, to be honest with you, because I was just indoors all the time. Or I had not much energy. I wasn't doing a lot. I uh, went back to school and got it about two weeks into, my, into that year, really, before things started going to a head. Now, the best thing to sort of, I suppose, pinpoint 
that what took us to where we was, but where we were was um, a sore leg. The first day of school, I woke up in the morning and I was like, felt like I had like a strained hamstring, like, you know, that feel when, when you've gone a bit too hard and you're exercising the gym, and you've got a bit of sore, sore muscles and had that kind of feeling. I was like hobbling around school, like, oh, this will go eventually. And I stretched out, kind of got better. Woke up the next day and it was back again, even worse. And essentially over that week, it just got worse and worse and worse until we got to Thursday when for the first time in my life, I said, I need to go to the doctors. So mum took me down to the doctors, got checked out. He basically agreed with what I thought it was in a strained muscle and then sent us back with some ointment to rub onto it to basically make it get better. And obviously why I'm, why I'm here, it didn't get better. And we headed back to the doctors a week later after I had basically spent a week of not eating. I was very pale. I was having panic attacks. I was having severe night sweats. I was having like hallucinations, all sorts. And I was sent back to the doctors and he said, look, I don't think it's a broken bone, but I'm going to send you for an x-ray just in case it's like a chipped bone in there that's causing some kind of infection. And that's why you're having these kind of reactions. So we went into hospital, had an x-ray, mum kind of kind of see you know they, they kind of see on the x-ray roughly what it is without being diagnosed kind of see roughly mum could see nothing because she was stood behind the screen with a lady and said as we walked out we're going to a and e and i was kind of like a bit shocked i was like well they've said it's fine so we're okay let's wait for the doctor to see the x-ray so i hobbled around to a and e reluctantly we walked into the reception mum actually said to me i said to the receptionist i hope we're not wasting your time and fast forward three or four hours, I'm laying in a hospital bed with a consultant stood over me telling me that I've got anemia. And he was also pretty sure I had leukemia as well. Wow. Um, it's amazing to hear you go through that timeline. And I think the thing that stands out for me is that how quickly things changed for you. You know, you were having a sore leg, which is not necessarily a, a sign of a blood cancer or a cancer of any sort. And then suddenly, obviously, there were other things going on. But then before you know it, you're getting a diagnosis. Um, and that's incredible. I think that's, that's pretty hard hitting to hear that. I think it would be useful for people if we sort of outline a little bit of some of those more common symptoms that happen with leukemias. You had the stiff leg, which is the thing that made you go to the, to the hospital in the end. But you also had a few other things. So can you just talk a little bit about what we usually see with leukemia? Yeah. So my first kind of symptom was basically nine weeks before and it was night sweats. And I know loads of people, obviously, sometimes I think night sweats is a big symptom. We see leukemia that people kind of panic about because we all get them naturally every now and again. You might wake up in the middle of the night and you're sweating a little bit. It's normal. I have people messaging me all the time. Like, I had night sweat last, last like, night. Do I need to be worried? I'm like, always just, you know, see how it goes next couple of nights. And if you're still concerned, go and get it checked. But Night sweats was the first thing that I had. And it was like basically wake up in the middle of the night, caked in sweat. My duvet soaked. So someone basically chucked water over me and my, my pillow, everything. I always speak to people about, if you've seen Harry Potter, when um, Voldemort's trying to get into his head and he's wake up in the middle of the night, that covered in sweat. That's basically what a night sweat is. Um, and that was the first symptom I noticed, but it kind of came and went enough for like a normal teenager to ignore it and pretend, oh, this is nothing. And after that, sporadically with that came some kind of lightheaded spells but it felt like I was walking on clouds so really lightheadedness following from that we had fatigue as well and fatigue isn't like being tired I, I, another one it's quite difficult to explain it's not like I feel tired today it's basically you feel like you couldn't even walk down, down the corridor to get a glass of water and it just feels exhausting everything you've got to do feels exhausting you don't even want to face it thinking about it is too tiring so fatigue came after that and then 
I think paleness, I didn't really notice my paleness because I, you know, I suppose you see yourself in the mirror every single day. I don't really notice myself getting more pale, but my mum noticed it because I tan quite easily. And I think she noticed once the summer holidays kicked in, I was out and about, but I wasn't tanning. I was still very pale. And my grandparents came to visit from up north and even they said, look, you're quite pale this year. And I, as being a teenager, obviously people having attention on me kind of fobbed it off, like, leave me alone, ignore me. Don't look at me, stop, stop looking at me and, and like analysing me. Um so yeah, paleness, fatigue, night sweats, lightheaded spells. And then the big one for me was after that was kind of like panic attacks, which again, isn't very common, but it's, it can happen. And I genuinely think that was my body telling me there's something wrong here and we need to get this sorted ASAP. And obviously if it wasn't for the leg, which turned out to be something quite serious, but if it wasn't for the leg, I wouldn't have gone into hospital to get the leukemia diagnosis. Yeah, the things you're describing are what we get taught as sort of B symptoms mainly. So the tiredness, maybe some fevers, the night sweats, weight loss. I don't know if you lost any weight. Um, but those things often, one of the reasons it can be difficult to diagnose and it can present quite late is because they have quite an insidious onset. And like you say, you can shrug these things off. You know, or you're pale, you know, oh, well, yeah, I've not been out in the sun that much or, or you know, or you look skinny. Well, leave me alone. I'm, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not eating much or I've exercised more. Um, one of the reasons why I think, yeah, things things can progress further than, than in other cancers, shall we say. And so you had this diagnosis. Let's go back a little bit to your story and, and where things developed from there. You had a, a guy at the end of your bed, one of the doctors, and he told you that you had leukemia. What then transpired from there? So then sort of transpired this really, really frightening week, actually. Um, and it isn't until afterwards I really I thought about how close I came to not really being here during that week. Um, so we got diagnosed with, leuke with leukemia. They still had no idea what the leg was. They knew there was an infection there that was taking hold of my body slowly. Like my, my temperature was regularly rising above 48 degrees and it was going high, not 48, sorry, 30. 36, 38. The highest I had was 40 at one point. And that was horrible. Like I was literally lying in bed, getting dad to put um, duvets on me and everything. And I was still shivering, but I was spiking his temperature. So I was basically admitted there and then put up to a children's ward. Had five cannulas, which are obviously the needles you see in these people's arms on TV, put into my arms. Had five, had two in each hand um, and then one on my upper arm as well. And I just was thrown into this kind of adult world of hospital, which I'd never seen before. We were then transferred to Southampton General Hospital on the Sunday because unfortunately with childhood cancer, you've got to treat, it's treated quite specifically and in certain hospitals and Southampton was the closest hospital that could specialise in that. When we got to Southampton Hospital, things kind of started to take a head there and they had to find out very quickly what the infection was because my leukemic cells were very high and the infection was taking hold. And my consultant was basically saying, Without us knowing what the infection is, I can't start treatment for chemo with chemotherapy because it will essentially kill you because your immune system won't be able to deal with what you've got, what's going on. So she did lots and lots and lots of tests and eventually convinced some surgeons to go into my leg um, blind and try and figure out what it was. They went in and they opened the leg up, my left hamstring, and essentially my muscle had turned to slush. And I had blood poisoning within my leg. And then a stephorous infection as well, which was eating away at my muscle. So I, I basically had half a hamstring left. And my consultant admitted to me afterwards that with all of her knowledge, and she's retired now, but she's an incredible lady, led a lot of research in Europe. With all the knowledge, she was like, you medically shouldn't have made it through that first week. And 
the leukemia at the time was a better option to the infection and the blood poisoning. So it actually kind of brought it home that that week was a real telltale week. And I'm very, very lucky to still be here. A hundred percent. I mean, by definition, a leukemia, a blood cancer, I'll go on to explain a little bit about blood cancers uh, later in the podcast, but it means your immune system isn't working properly. The cells that form your immune system have become inefficient or faulty or immature. So for you to have well, that's one of the reasons you developed an infection. Definitely, people don't just tend to develop such a you know uh, such a nasty infection in their leg, particularly when they're young and fit. Usually, so the doctors are completely right. If they'd have done the treatment for leukemia at the time, they would have completely knocked off the rest of your immune system. So obviously, they would have done the operation to try and remove some of the infected tissue. They would have given you antibiotics, which would have saved your life, um, and then that gives your time your body some time to recover, even with a faulty immune system, for them then to later treat the chemo down the line. Um, but it's absolutely amazing. So, I mean, kudos to the, uh, to the medical staff that, that treated you at the time. Definitely. Definitely. Honestly, they're amazing. We can't, I could not take a hat off enough. And I was very lucky to have such a, a stubborn consultant in some ways who basically just put a foot down to surgeons and said, I don't really care what you think you're going in, you operate on this boy and find out what's wrong with him. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's blood cancer awareness month every September. So it's quite serendipitous, but you know, we're recording in September at the moment. I'm not sure when this will be released, but as an explanation a little bit, I'll try and go into, I'm no oncologist, but I'll try and explain blood cancers in a short summary for you here. They're different to solid organ tumors. So they affect different components of our blood and they often affect the cells that make up our immune system, as I alluded to before. Now, within one of these components, you have what are called stem cells, and you've probably heard of these, but these are undifferentiated cells. So they're sort of jacks of all trades. They can form lots of different cells as they mature. Now, one set of stem cells can become lymphoid cells, and they're a type of white blood cells, and they make up part of the immune system. There are different types of lymphoid cells. You may have heard of killer T cells. They basically seek out pathogens, so things like bacteria and viruses, and attack them. Or there's the other side that form B cells and they try and either make memory cells to remember these pathogens or they form antibodies. Now on the other side of that you've got stem cells that form myeloid cells and these are the cells that can form different parts of the blood like red blood cells that help carry oxygen around, platelets that help the blood clot and then other white blood cells and this is where leukemia comes in. These cells are continuously replicating and they're sort of being replaced by new cells to keep the immune system fresh and effective at performing its role. So it's absolutely pivotal and vital that this process is happening. However, occasionally when these cells replicate, a mutation occurs and that can lead to sort of uncontrolled division and growth of these white blood cells. Now, if that process goes wrong, we can develop different types of blood cancers. Um, and particularly with myeloid cells, that's where leukemias come into it. When we have large numbers of these cells, and they are often, like I mentioned before, immature or faulty, and therefore your immune system doesn't work. And that kind of explains why you, for that summer period, whilst this was developing, you were feeling poorly and you were probably picking up little infections here and there because your immune system wasn't working as well. So you were obviously very young when this all happened. Did you say 14? Yeah, 14. I was yeah very young. Just, yeah. just touching on the teenage years. Yeah, it's an interesting time in your life. And I just want to know, what was your mindset like at this time how how did you go about hearing that diagnosis it's really um it sounds really stereotypical and i know cancer patients and, and survivors of the hate stereotypical things but it is stereotypical in the sense that when the consultant said i had leukemia he carried on talking but even to this day i have no idea what he said literally no idea my my brain went blank it was just me and him in this this sort of tunnel vision of it and i think in my mind i 
I wouldn't have known what leukemia was because I personally don't think there's enough education about it in the younger years. We tend to sort of shield a lot of children away from these things and not tell them these symptoms, etc. When actually we need to be telling them. The only reason I knew what leukemia was is because there was an Aston Villa footballer who'd been diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia two years before. So I knew it was cancer because of his story. So without him, I would never have known what what this was. But straight away in my head, I was like, this isn't good. But it took me a couple of minutes to figure out it was it was it was blood cancer. And then I, I was sort of thinking, why me? And I went into this kind of um, almost like in denial, but also angry at don't know who, but somebody for it happening to me. I was like in hospital, like, why me? What people that have like murdered people, etc. Why is this happening to me? I've never done anything. I'm only 14. Um, and I suppose the only obvious response to that is why not? You know what I mean? It, it, it's Unfortunately, it's luck of the draw and it happened to me. And actually in a lot in the hindsight of things now, I'm quite fortunate because it taught me quite a bit. But as a 14-year-old, I was a very angry, angry youngster who'd just been given what I thought potentially might be a death sentence before I'd even started my life. And I'm not surprised. I think I'd be exactly the same. You know, the why me is is obviously something you don't really have the processing power, I think, as a 14-year-old. So I think it's so difficult. And the, another reason why it's so great that what you're doing, what you're doing now, and we'll go on to that a little bit later on. How common is leukemia? Do you know any sort of stats and figures? I know that in the, so especially acute myeloid leukemia, it's it's not as common in in youngsters. It's mainly for over seventy fives. So males over seventy fives, that's where it tends to be more common. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is obviously another form of it, that's more common in youngsters. So it was quite a rare. They called it a, a rare blood cancer, even they see see a fair amount of it anyway. Um, and it was you know, it's, it's not, it's not as if you walk down the street every day and, and see somebody that's, that's been diagnosed with it, et cetera. But I know that the stats are coming down and we're looking at one and two people at the moment who are being diagnosed with cancer, which is scary when I think about this, because actually when I was diagnosed, it was one in three. So it's going the wrong direction. Yeah, that is scary. I mean, specifically what I have read is around 10,000 cases a year in the UK each year. It's about the 12th most common cancer. And there's about a 70% survival at a year and 41% survival at 10 years. I'd be interested to see the split, like you say, acute myeloid leukemia is is much more common in older people and therefore they're less likely to survive anyway just by the nature of their, um, their age and their comorbidities and things. But I'd be interested to see how many uh, people at that age survive compared to younger people. It was always laid out to me was um, it was a fast-acting killer leukemia in the sense that it, it acted quickly and it, it would get on and, and do what it was going to do very quickly. I know that under 20s have got a 68% chance of survival post five years, which is very, very good. Over 20, it drops down to 20% without a stem cell transplant. And we'll definitely come on to stem cell transplants a little bit later. But you underwent some treatment originally. Um, I believe it was chemotherapy uh, of some sort. So can you tell us a little bit about that part of your life and what was your experience of chemo? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, chemotherapy, I was sort of um, given my concoction, as it were. It's sort of like your consultant picks out the, the medicine you're going to have, almost like a cocktail, like you're going to have this one for four months or six months, whatever. And I was told straight away that it was gonna, I was going to be in hospital for a long time. And essentially home became a weekend retreat every now and again um, with the treatment I was having my immune system was dropping so low after the chemotherapy because chemotherapy essentially just is rebooting the system up and down a few times. You're killing all the cells off, letting them reboot, killing them all off, letting them reboot, killing them all off, letting them reboot again. 
And the way that it was rebooting my cells, they were dropping so low that I was basically having to stay in hospital for five weeks, roughly. So I was getting three or four days at home between treatment, not like you see in the TV in the films where they're at home for five or six weeks and they go into hospital for two or three days and they're back again. There are treatments like that, but for acute myeloid leukemia, you're at home for two or three days, then you're in hospital for five to six weeks. And it was like that for six months. And I, again, went through the anger stage and I was miserable and I was sad and I was upset and I had to get used to throwing up in the morning. I had to get used to losing my hair. I had to get used to not wanting to eat some days. I was absolutely adamant. I wasn't going to have an NG tube put in, which is one of those nasal feeding tubes. I was absolutely adamant about that. And my consultant actually said to me that she'd never seen anybody not have one during acute myeloid leukemia. But I saw that as a challenge. So I decided to basically consume tubs and tubs and tubs of Pringles and Domino's and I managed to do it. Um, much to her surprise, <laughs> which was good. So I ate my way through chemo. Um, but one thing that I'd say w- was a real wake up call for me was I was at the end of my first round of treatment and I was miserable because chemotherapy makes you miserable. You're in a shit situation for want of a better word and it's horrible. And I was basically at this point where I was just like, again, why me? Why is it happening to me? I'm miserable as ever. And, and actually one of the nurses, um, was in there and she was giving me some potassium tablets. Anybody's had potassium tablets before, they're like horse tablets. They're huge. They're ridiculous. I hate tablets anyway. I was knocking these back. I had to have about eight of them. Got to the fourth one, threw up everywhere and then just kicked off. It like triggered me. As soon as I threw up, I just kicked off. I was crying. I was shouting. And she essentially grabbed me and didn't say something that I expected her to say, but something I needed to hear. And she said, look, you are in the wrong place to say, why me? And at the point I was like, that's rude. But now I look back, she was essentially saying, look, there's over 300 and whatever children I'm treating right now who are in the same situation as you. Don't say why me, because there's kids that are a lot worse off than you right now who haven't got the same outcome that you're going to have. And that woke me up and made me realize that I've got a choice here. I can either be miserable through it all and it's going to be horrible, or I try and make the most of missing school and have a lay-ins and play a lot of FIFA. (laughs) Uh, Well done to that nurse, because that's a a pretty brutal thing to say to a 14-year-old who has got leukemia and is obviously scared doesn't know what's going to happen next but actually like you say the thing that you needed to hear and the thing that sort of switched your mindset um so yeah well done to whoever she was um i'd like her to be my nurse at some point (laughs) in that situation chemotherapy it is a is a you know it like you say it is a concoction of drugs powerful powerful drugs that kill cells that are replicating now that's why you tend to lose your hair. You know, you can you lose lots of the gut tissue because that is quite an active part of your body that is replicating all the time, and you get lots of gut issues. It's um, why some of your taste goes because they they're also similar sort of cells. Um, but it's it's something that must have been incredibly challenging to go through. Did you get a lot of symptoms from chemotherapy? Yeah. So I my main thing was I either got a sore mouth or a sore bum, and it was basically that was. That was one or the other. And it was just basically luck of the draw in what you got. And I think, like you say, it it affects that tube, doesn't it? This comes through your mouth right down. Uh, the scariest thing that I got was when my platelets used to drop and I used to get nosebleeds. Um, and obviously nosebleeds can look really severe when actually there's not a lot of blood. But it looks like there's a lot because there's, you know, you like it's coming out my face. There's loads of, loads of blood, but there's not a lot. And I'd have like two or three hour nosebleeds, which were obviously extensive. But I would obviously think they're more severe than often. And I'd sometimes think I was going to die just from something like that. Um, and yeah, I think it was a kind of throwing up in the morning, getting used to that. that became part of my daily routine. It's all this stuff that you shouldn't have to do as a 14 year old. You shouldn't have to get used to at any age. You shouldn't have to get used to that. 
but I had to get used to it because it was basically my only option and the alternative wasn't thinkable. Yeah. And by definition, why we give chemotherapy, it's to the side effects is the same reason that we give for treatment, because the cancer cells are the ones that are replicating faster than most of the other cells. Um, And it's a knock on effect, basically, you know, it it wipes out the lot. um, And it's wiping out your immune system for a period of time. Like you said, you had five week periods where you had to stay in hospital. And that's because if you left and picked up an infection somewhere else, you are at risk of becoming extremely sick. So we basically need to wrap our patients in bubble wrap that are going through this, that have no immune system and keep them in very sort of sterile environments. And I guess that, you know, as extremely challenging as it must be mentally and physically, but particularly mentally, I feel that is something that is necessary to do. Definitely, yeah. I think when you say like the mental side of things as well, and it's just, it's hard because it's, I would love to, I have so many people come to me on my social media and everything like, what? what's the medical, or the miracle cure to being, bored in, in in treatment or feeling like this in treatment and without sounding really harsh and giving tough love you, you're responsible for that unfortunately and it can be really tough and I know that because I've been in that situation I feel like I've got the right to say that because I've been there and I understand it and it can be tough but you have to keep your mindset as positive as possible because I am a big believer in the fact that if you attack one of these things with a positive mindset and you go in it with a with a on the oh you have down days of course you will but on the days you're going to be up, you have the best up days you can possibly have and you do what you can with it. It gives you, I, I personally believe it gives you a, a really good chance of, of, of having to fight, being able to fight off as well, because although the drugs do do the job, you've, you know, your, your mind is going to help you even better. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in the, the mind-body connection. Uh, it's stronger than we think. And I think we've gone away in some ways of, of understanding or believing in that, but a positive mental attitude definitely has profound effects on people's recovery. Um, And that's been seen before uh, in scientific research as well. So you achieved remission following chemotherapy and then you relapsed. What was the timeframe between that and how did you cope with that? So I, my relapse was probably the hardest part of it all, I'd say, because the timeframe was a year. I probably relapsed before the year was up, but because I'd, I'd achieved remission in my first treatment, which was incredibly lucky, it, my consultant counted it as a year. I remember her saying to me when I got back in for my relapse, which I'll go over in a minute, but she said to me, you know, you've got to the 12-month thing, which is a good thing, which is weird because you're going back in with cancer again. Your consultant is saying, it's good that you've got 12 months out of this. Um, and yeah, I got my year, basically. I got, I got out of hospital after six months of treatment, got back on in my life again. I was a teenager, I was buzzing, I was excited. I was traveling around again, went to a wedding in Italy, managed to go to Qatar to see my auntie who worked out there and see all the World Cup stuff out there. Incredibly fortunate, living my life. And then Christmas of next year, uh, I noticed symptoms again. And it was basically little things to start off with. So tiny little nosebleeds that were quite persistent. Um, And then going pale, night sweats, coming back again. My appetite was sort of going up and down. I'm a big lover of food, but my appetite was going up and down again. Um, And all this stuff started coming back again. And I ignored it, which is completely the wrong thing to do. And I put it at the back of my head and I hid it. I knew at the back of my head what was happening. I knew that my cancer was back. I knew I was relapsing because it felt the same as it did the time before. But I didn't tell anybody because I was terrified of what that meant because I was never kind of spelled out what would happen if I relapsed. For me, from the films, I was like, this is bad news. Um, and I hid it from mum. I hid it from dad. I, I hid it from the doctors. I wouldn't tell them anything. And I, I basically put it all under hush-hush for three months. And it wasn't until we had like a year in a mission um, 
party, which we did for the first and last time. We never did it again. <laughs> we had a party and everyone was stood up like, you know, saying, oh, well done, Ryan. You've done, you know, 12 months out of chemotherapy. And I just sat there like a fraud, basically, feeling like a massive fraud. and a big bruise on my chin that my nana noticed. And she said, oh, that bruise is big. And I lied and I sort of banged on the kitchen sink, which I hadn't done. It was just, it just appeared. And it wasn't until the next morning that I woke up with a lymph node swollen up in my neck. And that was in the physical and I had a clot in my mouth as well that I spat out. And that was in the physical point that I couldn't hide anymore. And I went into the kitchen basically in hysterics and crying and said to my mum, I need to go to hospital because I think it's back. And she was like, no, no, it'll be fine. You, you'll be right. Much be feeling unwell and went back into hospital. Consultant took some blood tests. Um, we went down for a meal. Now, this is really odd because we went down for a meal into the restaurant and the consultant that diagnosed me in A&E, I hadn't seen since my diagnosis in A&E. And I'm sat there eating my meal in the restaurant with my dad. I look up and as I look up, this consultant who was in A&E, who I saw for the first time and the last time when I was diagnosed, walked through a door. And it was the first and last time I saw him. And he walked through this door on the other side of the hospital. And I just complete chance looked up as he did that. We then got a call five minutes later and they said the blood tests were back and they wanted to come speak to us. I walked into the room, the consultant was sat down. This was the child, um, the pediatric consultant. And he said, um, he basically started speaking. And I just stopped him. I said, I know. And he said, know what? And so I know that it's back. And he basically just spelled out what was going to happen. He then said, I need to have a platelet transfusion because my bloods were basically the lowest that he'd ever seen. And my platelets were on the count of, I think it's something the millionth, but it was seven, um, which is very, very low, obviously, um, to the point that if I cut myself, I would have been in big, big trouble. My count was so low that he basically said, look, we'll do a platelet transfusion. I've rung Southampton. They're expecting you. You can go home tonight. I went home, told my sisters, told my grandparents, took ownership of the diagnosis, really, and then was back up into Southampton the next day and kind of welcomed home like a, a family member coming home from a long holiday. I think, I mean, it must have been so, so difficult, firstly, for you to, to have to go through that. And I, I'm not surprised that you tried to hide it for a while. I think it's a natural reaction for a lot of people. But in some ways, listening to you talk there, I feel like you probably had grown up a hell of a lot and you have been forced to grow up a hell of a lot in the time between too much, I think, for a 14 year old in some ways, uh, between the, four, you know, the, the first diagnosis and your uh, relapse. And in some ways, it sounds like that's helped or that did help you to deal with that second diagnosis and take ownership, like you just said, so perfectly there of your, of your, you know, your illness. Definitely. Yeah, I think. I think cancer makes you grow up anyway. And, and these life experiences, and they happen to everybody. Not cancer specifically, but people go through difficult things. And a lot of the time it will teach something. And I think as a 14-year-old, I was taught a hell of a lot very quickly. And I was forced to grow up. I mean, that's not factoring, forget the point, I was spending basically 24 hours a day around adults. So I wasn't really communicating with kids that much anyway. But I was still growing up because I had to. I had to basically be like, you need to be serious here. This is a very serious situation. Absolutely. I saw on your Instagram the other day that you've had 16 operations, which is a hell of a lot for a young chap. But there's one that I want to focus on a little bit. You had a stem cell transplant. So can you tell us a little bit about what that involved and, and how long did you have to wait for a match? Yeah, definitely. So uh, yeah, I, I was very fortunate in the sense that I was able to have uh, a stem cell transplant. Um, I think... I wasn't too sure what that was to start off with. And I don't think many people do. And it's starting to get more airtime now, which is really good. Um, more media outlets picking up on it and sort of trying to promote it as best they can. And, and celebrities endorsing it as well. The register like Anti-Nolan, DKMS, NHS, 
these different areas that promote the register. Um, so basically, when I was re- when I relapsed, my consultant sat me in a room, and I was 15 at the time. I was just off my 16th birthday, and she was very much like, "Look, I want you to take some more ownership of your diagnosis. And I'm going to treat you like an adult." Because she asked me, "Do you want to be treated more like an adult?" I said, "Yeah, I want to be treated more like an adult. I want to be involved in it." She sat me down in a room and said, "Basically, you've relapsed. The good thing is the cells are very similar. The bad news is." we can't treat it like we did last time. We need to have a stem cell transplant. The worst news is you've got four half siblings who won't be a match for you. So you need to go to the register and we need to find somebody who is unrelated to you who can then be a match. And without that, she basically looked me in the eye and said, you're not going to make Christmas if you don't, if we don't find you a match, unfortunately. It's going to be very, very difficult for you to be able to make that period of time because of how ill you are, which is a bit of a shock. Um, quite scary as well yeah just a bit yeah just a bit yeah but she was very to the point and and i do appreciate her for how she was and she was kind of our guardian angel um as a woman and she was supposed to retire that year but when i came back she didn't retire she held off until she got me through which was very kind of her um and yeah basically we were given this this we'll search a register and a, a, a search began like that and they started looking through the registers and 65 days later, we were given the news that Anthony Nolan had found a 10 out of 10 match for me on the register. And the NHS had found a 10 out of 10 match for me as well, which was fantastic. And 10 out of 10 is obviously the best you can get. And I'm very fortunate to have had two found for me. Now, the Anthony Nolan one was a young male and the NHS one was a young female. And not for the obvious sake that I'm a young male anyway, um, but also for the fact that males tend to produce more stem cells naturally they decided to go with the anti-Nolan match. And from there, the cogs sort of start turning. You know, you don't hear a lot, but behind the scenes, they start organizing and they start basically working towards a date, which is going to work for the donor because the donor obviously has to work around them. And it's going to work for the patient as well, because in terms of of their timescale and when they need to have this transplant by. Um, So from a donor's perspective, as I imagine, obviously a lot of people listening, if you're not a donor, then please do look at being a donor. But from their perspective, it's handled very well. You're sort of, it's worked around you. You're invited to, to tests and you have, you have loads of tests done, blood tests, et cetera, until they then ask, they can take the stem cells. Um, and the stem cell process harvesting is essentially you sit in a, in a chair for eight hours. If you've given blood before, it's pretty much identical to that. And they harvest stem cells out of the blood and then you get your blood back, obviously. You don't get, you get the, it rings right around, like nice big machine. Um, And for the patient side of things, I had two rounds of chemotherapy to knock me back into remission. Then I was given a 13-week gap and the 13-week gap essentially um, was just sort of me to kind of like go home and see my family and spend some time with the family and just sort of be together because obviously a stem cell transplant can be, it's a very very serious lengthy process and it is you do take the body to a very very i want to say dark place but the bottom line basically it's a tough process on the body um but managed well because these consultants do it all the time um and i was yeah given a 13 weeks off and then went back in has a central line fitted with three sort of tubes coming out central line people that don't know is a tube that goes into your chest um and you'll see it you'll see it on cancer patients it's hidden under the clothes a lot of the time but it's just an easier way of administering and taking blood etc without having to be uh, like prodded and poked too often um had one of them put in had a um gastro tube put into my stomach because 
I basically refused to have an NG tube, which was very stubborn of me. <laughs> I didn't fancy the seven day change. <laughs> so I had a whole operation done as well. Um, and you got the top tier treatment then. <laughs> yeah, I got the top tier treatment. Yeah, which um, actually there's a side story of that, which I'll go into later if we've got time. But something went quite seriously wrong um, during that operation, which could have landed me in a severe situation but we can go into that we've got time later um and yeah had my my lines fitted got two years at home went to the royal mars in, in london and started 11 days of conditioning to chemotherapy which from my consultants words were the the big guns of chemo essentially they were the, the big dogs just to put that into perspective the last drug that i received is a derivant from mustard gas from world war one so that's basically how serious we're looking um so yeah i had 11 days of chemotherapy and then on the had a one day break, and then on day minus zero, very very anticlimactic. Uh, basically, someone walks in with this orangey bag of stem cells, hooks it up, attaches it to your line, and leaves it for half an hour to drip in over you. And I felt very warm and fuzzy. I think that's the feeling that I got when the stem cells were going in. It was like my face and stuff felt very warm and fuzzy. Um, they modest you to make sure you have no sort of anaphylactic shock to it, and then they take it down, and your body's left to do what your body's going to do. Yeah. So basically the premise is that you knock off all your immune system. That's why they give you the, you know, the heavy duty, the mustard gas. And then they give you these stem cells that supposedly your body is not going to see as a foreign object or an enemy and your body will accept them and allow those stem cells to then produce a healthy set of white blood cells, a healthy new immune system, which obviously in your case worked, but you know, in some cases it, it doesn't, unfortunately. The same goes for different sort of transplants, liver transplants, kidney transplants. Um, the same process happens. Did you have to take other drugs whilst you were getting the stem cell transplant? Oh, yes. Yeah, lots of lots of medicines. Uh, I think I was basically feeding myself off medicine. So I had um, an immunosuppressant called cyclosporin, and that was essentially like the... Well, give you that for 100 days and that'll just push your immune system down to make sure that your body hopefully doesn't react to it um antifungals antibiotics were just put up as a precaution um all sorts was sort of pumped into my system and i basically i slept for a long long time after that transplant and i was out of it for about seven days just sleeping up, up and out watching tv not doing a lot really and you're in isolation as well complete isolation no nobody's allowed in windows can't open doors can't open you can have three visitors and that's max although that's different at the moment because of covid so it's a yeah quite a severe situation yeah that that is something i want to touch on the amount of time you've had to spend in hospital um, and those drugs, as immunosuppressants, you said, we give those to make sure that the immune system that was already there doesn't kick back in and attack those stem cells. It gives them the best possible chance. But because of that, we need to keep people again in that bubble wrap coating in the sterile environment so they don't pick up any nasty bugs. I think it can be really difficult to truly imagine what life was like for someone that hasn't experienced anything similar to what you went through. So something that stuck out for me um, during our first conversation and what you've touched on there actually is the sort of endless amount of time you spent in hospital as an adolescent um, it's a hugely important part of our lives both for our development learning about ourselves learning what makes us tick and what sort of person we are you know it forms part of our personality a big part I think and it really struck a chord with me and I can't imagine how difficult those times were for you what helps you get through those difficult moments particularly after that stem cell transplant I imagine you said it's taking your body to the dark place yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult. And I think it's one of the reasons why I was very had a very fortunate mindset when the coronavirus pandemic came around, because it was like you're in lockdown and you've got to go and you've got to go and isolate, but you can go for walks in your local area. So for me, isolation from my historic knowledge was 
basically me being in a, in a room, a four-walled room with one toilet, not allowed out. The door's unlocked, but you can't open it, which is like the most antagonizing thing in the world because people come in and out, nurses and doctors come in and out, and you know the door's unlocked because obviously it's not locked up because so that'd be inhumane. But you, you can't leave that door and you know you can't leave that door. You can hear the world outside. You can see the world outside the windows, but you can't join it. You feel quite isolated from the rest of the world. And for me, distraction techniques became a, a big thing. I, I, a big, obviously, I'm, a, I'm really big on the fact that you can't always change your external environment, but you can change the way that you think about it and the way you perceive your external environment. So for me, the main thing was basically, look, I can't change the fact I'm in hospital and nothing nothing is going to get me out of hospital in a safe way. I need to just basically deal with this. I need to find a way to get through it. I never would ever suggest wishing your life away, but I think it's the only possible time that you want to kind of wish the days away because you're in hospital. So for me, it comes down to what I did. A big thing for me was basically segmenting my days. So what I'd do is I'd have, I played a lot of FIFA. Still not very good at it for some reason, but I played a lot of FIFA (laughs) and watched a lot of films. So let's take the Harry Potter films. Me and I'm a big Harry Potter fans. I've mentioned it before, but yeah, we're big Harry Potter fans. And there's eight films. So that's potentially eight days or it's eight weeks. So instead of us binge watching the films every single night for eight days, we binge watch them over eight weeks. We went, right, okay, we'll watch Harry Potter on Thursdays. You've got a Thursday to look forward to then. And you watch it every Thursday. We'll watch Gavin and Stacey. We'll watch two episodes of Gavin and Stacey now in the morning. Then you can play some FIFA. You can do what you want to do. And then we can watch two in the afternoon kind of just segmenting your day up like you do of work because we all know when we get into the rhythm of work we get into the rhythm of life life goes by very quickly so what i had to do was basically rebuild this rhythm within an environment that I wasn't comfortable with so it was just about basically finding all these distraction techniques and trying to use them as best as i possibly could one thing as well that i would suggest for um, stem cell transplant specifically which is something i did was taking a project with you so obviously you get bored, believe me, you get bored of watching TV after a while and you get bored of watching like um, films and there's only so much Homes Under the Hammer that you can watch in the morning until you're sick of his, his voice. Um, and you're at this point where you need to find something else to get your brain occupied. So when I was in Southampton, I wasn't in isolation. I did like a lot of research into different things and would create like little mini booklets of research. So I'm a big football fan. I'd do research into players and I'd create like a little booklet about the player or I'd do like research into clubs or stadiums and do booklets about that just keep my brain ticking over and be like keep writing keep typing keep reading and processing information um and then in my stem cell transplant i took in a lego project so i took in a vw camper and i wasn't too keen on it It as my dad's suggestion he decided to do it and and we we went ahead and did it and i'd spend like maybe 10 15 minutes if i felt well enough just like building a little bit of the camper that'd be enough for me to tire me out but it's something that i've done and then actually it's now something that i can look at and then although getting through a stem cell transplant is incredibly positive in itself. I've now got a visual thing of something that I did in those six or seven weeks. I'm like, that's actually quite cool. Something that's I've achieved something quite cool there. I've built a camper van. It looks quite good. Yeah. I love that. Having that memory of actually turning it in some ways into a, into a positive, something you can look back at and be fairly proud of that. The fact you've got through that on the flip side of spending all this time in hospital, it gives you one hell of a lot of thinking time. So I guess on reflection, what did these difficult times teach you about how you live your life and and what advice can you have for people out there on that? Definitely. Yeah, no, it's a massive um, learning curve and I'm writing a book at the moment about it basically. And like what cancer taught me as a teenager um, going through cancer twice before I was able to drive what it taught me to do of what it's taught me. And I will say what the consultant said to me in the sense that when I was first diagnosed, I got better. I got, and 
they always said like you'll think about this afterwards you won't think about it while you're going through it because you're just too preoccupied the emotions and everything and your brain sort of filtering through it all will be a post-cancer operation really within yourself and um yeah i basically when i got out of hospital i put cancer into a little box shut it to the back of my head and didn't think about it and it wasn't until four or five years down the line that i actually got it back out again and dealt with it because it was really affecting me i put it in the back of my head and i was having like bad like mental health because of that and i didn't realize it was the cancer that i hadn't really dealt with i completely disregarded the fact i had it i deleted all my pictures of me bold i got rid of everything that related me to cancer and pretended it never happened and it wasn't until i got it back out again that i started thinking actually you know what this is bloody cool this is a this is a cool thing to have been through as a teenager like yeah that's a weird thing to say but i say now like cancer is literally without sounding weird one of the best things that could have happened to me as a 14 year old within my life it's probably one of the best things that has happened to me which is a really weird thing to say but it's given me perspective on life it's given me a positive mindset it's shown me that there's things i want to do in the world and there's places i want to see and there's a limited amount of time that we all have on this planet and you've got to go and do what you want to do with your life don't bother about trying to please every person that you see in the street because you can't there's eight billion people on this planet and you will never please all of them but if you're happy that's all that matters so it's given me this kind of not selfish but this mindset that i'm like if i i want to go and do stuff that's gonna make me happy and i want to use my time as best i can i want to warrant those who unfortunately there's friends that i've lost from cancer and i want to warrant their time that they haven't got with the time that i've got and make sure i don't waste a second on this planet any, anymore and it's just given me this zest for life and i always call, call it like the cancer patient zest for life because they've all got the same we've all got the same it's like this special buzz that's just I love everything. And it's like, it's raining. Well, that's cool because the flowers are getting fed. And it's like this weird, like little positive attitude that you have that to life that people just seem to feed off. I literally absolutely love that. I think people will really, I don't know, resonate with that, but it's really powerful that that, that cancer patient's way of looking at things. You, in some ways, blessed with coming closer to, to the end, end result than, than most other people. And that actually gives you a different perspective, a different level of self-awareness of what you actually have and what you should be grateful for and honoring like you say the people that you might have known that have not been as lucky as you uh, and that's that's quite profound for me there's loads of bits of great advice for people there don't live your life on autopilot you know take every day as it comes and and you know make sure that it's special and appreciate the things in your life don't try and please everyone you know you're, you're just gonna you know spread yourself too thin if you do that i think that's you know really great advice I'm not surprised that, you know, maybe you struggled a little bit with your mental health at times. Cancer is a trauma. And particularly when you listen to the story you've been through, it's a huge trauma. And I remember when you first spoke to me on the phone, the fact that you were in denial was one of the things that stood out for me. You were in denial for such a long period of time. And I think when people are in denial of these issues that they have particularly when they've had trauma it's often the root of mental health issues and when we don't speak about it and we don't accept it and try and move and work through it that's when they result in in the mental health problems that we see how did you make that switch from being in denial to going about talking about it so it actually came around in the coronavirus pandemic and it was basically when i was given this time and i think a lot of us were given this time to like real reevaluate things life is just like this train that constantly moves and we're like always on it going forward constantly moving and we don't have a chance to look out the window or stop and we we're all kind of like the train just stopped and everyone was like well what do we apart from obviously people like you working your profession you guys are like full steam ahead 
But a lot of other people were like, what do we do now? You know, we've got to stay at home. We've got to protect people. We've got to be very conscious of what we're doing. But that gave us a lot of thinking time. And that's when I decided that I was going to sort of get cancer out of my head and start thinking about it. And I did it on walks and I would speak to myself about it on walks, which sounds really weird, but I'd speak to myself about stuff and I'd, I'd voice over my head and go over it. And bit by bit, I went over my journey for the first time. And I was, I'd never done this. I was unearthing all these emotions and it was exhausting emotionally, but it was very good for me. And the more I did it, the more I thought, you know what, this is, this is helping me. And there must be people out there that it's going to help as well. Um, and that's when I started talking more about it. And I started the social media page as well, because I thought when I was going through it, there was never anybody really that was like voicing male, young male wise, that was voicing their opinion and saying, this is what it's like afterwards. This is what it's like during and you're okay because you're on this. Now, I always think mental health wise as well, a lot of it, I think a lot of it stems from isolation, that feeling of isolation, that feeling of being on your own, that feeling of nobody understanding it. But I feel like hopefully the, the voice that I raise helps people understand they're not on their own and there's a world of people that have had the same feelings they've had and they shouldn't feel guilty for that and it's normal but the best thing you can do is talk and even if it's just yourself talk to yourself as crazy as it is go into a field and talk to yourself yeah i don't think it's crazy at all to be honest i think it's actually really powerful to as soon as you speak any thoughts that you have out onto paper or out just out loud i i heard someone the other day they, they talked to their pet you know like the pet doesn't the pet's not going to turn around and tell you what's what and, and give you any great advice but it's the putting those thoughts externally you can then objectify them and break them down and start to work through them and they feel like less of a burden i think um and that's why i always i always you know recommend journaling to anyone that's going through anything even if or even if you're not going through anything it's incredibly powerful I absolutely love your page. Um, the message you're spreading is great and you're so positive. You put it in a, you know, a really sort of aesthetic way at times as well with your little videos of making coffee in the morning, asking me questions. You're always a great source of advice and I can imagine that you have helped tons of people who are going through anything similar or not. Um, but yeah, I would fully recommend following you. What, what, how can people find you on Instagram? So the best, uh, the L card, um, which basically comes from every single card that a cancer patient gets given and you get given something called the cancer card where you can play it whenever you want. And I actually played it my GCSEs, which I don't, I don't feel guilty for because I got asked my English A-level write a story about something you've been through in your life. And I thought, I'm going to write a story about something I've been through in my life and you're not going to fail me. Um, and it worked quite well. But yeah, the, the L card, that's, that's what the name that you use for anything. TikTok, um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's all on there. Just type the L card and, and you'll find me. That's such, I, I've seen it and I didn't know what it was. And I, I, that is such a better story than I had envisaged in my head. That's so good. If mum, mum was the one that um, kind of coined the phrase, because obviously you'd think of the cancer card and then obviously the L card came from the fact that I constantly played it even afterwards. And she got to the point where she was like, stop playing the L card. That's, right that's definitely when you're stropping, isn't it? You're like, like, <laughs> like mum, bring me the meatloaf. Yeah, yeah. I had, <laughs> stop I, playing the L card. Yeah, yeah stop it, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when I was going through treatment, sometimes it did work in the sense that if we're looking for car parking, this sounds horrific. When you look for a car parking space, take your hat off. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> There's positive oh, cancer, but you never hear that. <laughs> yeah, take your hat off. <laughs> yeah. You've got to take the small victories sometimes, though. You do. Yeah, you do. You have to use it sometimes. And through your page, you've done something fantastic online recently. Um, I shared your reel to my followers it was about going back to the stem cell transplant and and how how people can help and how people can get involved so can you tell people a little bit about what they can do if they fancy doing something good definitely yes yeah. so if you fancy helping out and saving a life basically that's 
what it is. That's the crux of it. Yeah, you're saving a life essentially. And I always think put yourself in a position if, if a loved one was in the position I was in and you had the same stem cells as them, you donate your stem cells in a heartbeat. So look, the stem cell register in the UK is 2% of the UK population, which is 800,000 people. And although 2,000 people a year need a stem cell transplant, mathematics and science don't tend to always align in the sense that the cells that everybody has, there's not 800,000 people that all match the 2,000 people. So you go through points and you've probably seen on social media people struggling to get matches and that's because there's no one on the register. So that person is essentially heading down a one-way street without us signing up for that register. So the thing you can do is you can go to my bio um, on my social media pages. There's a little link there and you can check if you can be a stem cell register of Antinolan or you can go to Antinolan or DKMS directly and sign up through there. Alternatively, if you're like me and in the words of a consultant, my insides are too messed up for you to donate anything because you don't want them because they've been through enough. Um, you can do other stuff like raise awareness. So you can donate money, you can raise awareness, you can convince your friends, take them for coffee, sweeten them up with Starbucks, then go, right, well, this is the website, put your name in there. Um, but I'd always say to anybody who does sign up, make sure you know what you're signing up for, look into it, uh, make sure you're happy to do that. But also take into account that you will be kept anonymous for up to two years post-transplant and continuously if you don't, if you want to stay anonymous. So even if you don't, you get to the point where you are a match, but it's not the right time in your life to donate stem cells, you're not legally or contractually obliged to, to hand over your stem cells, you can say no at any point in the process. Brilliant. So you head to the Anthony Nolan website or into your bio and find it from there. It's a fairly easy procedure, right? It's not, not too strenuous to go through? No, no. I did a, a talk with Anthony Nolan on... Um, world cancer day on the 4th of february and we spoke to a donor which is an incredible insight and it is a fairly easy easy process you want to you signing up it's harder to sign up to facebook nowadays than it is to sign up to the anti-nolan register and then actually going through the process of the stem cells everything is funded by anti-nolan which i didn't know until then so from your hotel outside the hospital to your travel from your house to the hospital where you donate your stem cells it's all funded by the charity you don't pay a penny all you've got to do is basically be there when you can and when they ask you to be and they'll get you there when you need to be so it's essentially you sit back they take the stem cells in the blood you watch rubbish daytime tv and drink cups of tea sounds spot on everyone's favorite day off <laughs> <laughs> and i think you can also get through on the nhs website as well to a similar service to anti nolan Yes, yeah, and DKMS, I think they tend to take, um, you can go up to 50 with that. Anti-Nolan is 16 to 30, but um, yeah, up to, up to 50 on the NHS and DKMS sites. Ryan, you, you're someone that has an incredible lease for life. You're so positive, yet you've been through a lot and you've had your own issues. And I just think that you've probably got some good insights for anyone that's going through something difficult or knows someone that's going through something difficult perhaps maybe something similar to what you've been through like a diagnosis or even just a breakup or a bereavement what would you say to them what's your best bit of advice my best bit of advice would be every single person that listens needs to understand at some point in your life you're going to go through something difficult and life will get tough and that is basically how life works and it's different for everybody it can be big it can be small but it can feel like the biggest thing in the world when you're going through it the only similarity to all of it is every single person who gets out of that dark tunnel that we fall into and we go through a difficult thing comes out a different person, a stronger person and a more rounded person. So when you go through something difficult and this is how I see my cancer, don't see it and it's hard to do when you're going through it, but don't see it as like the worst thing in the world. See it as something that's only making you stronger and something that's going to make you individual and unique and you're going to have some incredible advice and an incredible story to tell as you carry on through life. I always say 
no failure or point of life where you're going down is a dark point or a failure if you see it as a lesson because everything is a lesson in life and we can learn and grow from it that's absolutely spot on and i think that it can be difficult like you say to do at the time but when we reflect back on all of the hard things we've undertaken or, or been through in our lives and that's the way we we have to see it and they, they're always lessons for us absolutely and one more thing i want to chuck in there as well is when you get these difficult things as well and i suppose i've just kind of said like this is what you think when you're when you get out of it but dealing with it don't look at the mountain when you climb everest it's very rare you look at, i've never climbed everest but it's very rare you look at the top all the time you're not always looking up at the top of it you're not always looking at this massive mountain you're looking at what's in front of you you might be crossing a crevice you might be climbing up a little bit think of it as steps don't look at the overall goal don't look at you know if you're going through a breakup don't look at okay i've got to get myself a new house whatever look at steps right what's the first step we've done that we've achieved that we've got up one mountain what's the next step step at a time and eventually before you know it you'll be at the top and you'll be looking down and thinking that's the old me this is the new me and i'm so much stronger now yeah, I guess that goes back to what you were saying about breaking your days and weeks into segments and, and it then becomes a lot easier to get through that, you know, that huge amount of time that you had in hospital. Definitely, yeah. I think, like you say, it's just segment it down. And even like you said, speaking it out, getting out of your head, out of that confusing place in our head sometimes and just getting the words out. Yeah, definitely. It's been a great chat. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. It's It's honestly an absolute pleasure and the way you speak about life is... I don't know, it is really inspiring. I think people will really enjoy this chat. Just to round off, I always ask my guests for one main tip that people can take into their life. This can be anything to improve their health and their happiness. So one main tip to improve your health and your happiness. One thing that has really helped me recently is basically every single week, reward yourself with something that you enjoy doing and put time aside for yourself so we we're all like people in relationships as well do the same thing and and spend some time by yourself and have some self-care time where you might go and play a bit of xbox for an hour you might go and watch football for a bit you might go and watch sport you might go and do your nails or do your hair whatever spend some time to look after yourself because i always say that you're the most important person in your life you're the only person in the world that you will live with and die with for the whole of your life you've been with you for every single point of your life so you're the most important person and the main character of your life treat yourself like that that's a great soundbite <laughs> the ringtone 100 percent. you've got to look after yourself first i think rupaul says it i don't know if you watch rupaul but if you don't look after yourself how are you going to look after anyone else yeah definitely it's absolutely spot on ryan it's been great chatting to you today absolutely loved every minute i wish you all the best with what you do i'd massively advise anyone out there to to go and give you a follow on instagram keep up the great work you're doing and i'm hoping to meet you soon in person when we can definitely thanks so much for having me and just keep doing what you're doing because it's amazing i love seeing all the posts and yeah definitely we'll go for beer or something at some point sounds great man all the best cheers you too and that's a wrap for this episode of the straight talking doctor pod I hope you not only found this episode interesting, but also hopefully learned something that you can use to help improve your life. If you enjoyed the podcast, or even if you didn't, I'd be so, so grateful if you could go onto your streaming site and leave a five-star review so that I can reach as many people as possible. Finally, if you have any feedback or suggestions for further guests, please get in touch with me at The Straight Talking Doctor on Instagram. 